Well, 1 Thessalonians is a book of two halves. Uh, Chapters 1 to 3 is clearly the first half. Chapters 4 and 5 is the second half. Chapter 4 begins with the word finally. It doesn't mean that Paul's drawings were closed. It means that the second half is beginning. And that it's a book of two halves is clear because the end of the first half comes in the end of chapter 3 with a prayer. And chapter 5 ends at chapter 5 and verse 23 with a very similar prayer. So the two halves of the letter are ended with uh, Paul's uh, similar prayers. And we're going to read the last bit of the first half. So so picking up where we left off yesterday at chapter 2, verse 17, and I'm going to read to the end of chapter 3. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way that the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. As soon as our last holiday has ended, so I start planning for the next one. I love holidays. You'll nearly always find, beside my side of the bed, uh, brochures collected from the travel agent, guidebooks borrowed from the library. I love the whole run-up to holidays. And nothing more than when the tickets arrive with the holiday itinerary, when to check in, the time of the flight, the location of the cottage we're going to. And then I enjoy, though others always hate, afterwards showing people the pictures. Indeed, Joe will tell you that during holidays I write a diary of what we've done and I bore people senseless uh, after the holiday with such diaries. In fact, my holiday diaries, I don't write them as well as Bill Bryson and they certainly don't sell as well as Bill Bryson, but they're nonetheless a record of the travels that we've undergone on holiday. And it's clear from 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 that Paul also kept a record of his travels. And here in 1 Thessalonians 2, we've got the travel itinerary of the Apostle. Here are the details of what he's been doing since he was in Thessalonica. And it's not hard to catalogue the items in Paul's diary. First, there's his absence explained. 
So Paul had wanted to visit the city of Thessalonica but hadn't been able to. The next entry is his envoy dispatched. Paul couldn't make the trip, so he sends Timothy instead to get an update on the situation, to bring back to Paul news of what's been going on. And then thirdly in Paul's future, in, in the travel blog, are Paul's future hopes. Timothy's come back with the report and Paul now himself wants to go there and visit them soon. And at one level, that's the contents of our passage. The travel diary of the Apostle Paul. His absence explained, his envoy sent, and his future hopes. But Paul has allowed the Thessalonians and us to know of what he's been up to and what he wants to do in the future, not just for mere interest. This isn't a quickly written postcard to let them know what he's been up to before he next gets to visit them. No, actually what Paul writes here is vital information for the health of the Thessalonian church. Now, remember the situation. However long Paul had been in Thessalonica, it wasn't that long before he was thrown out of town. Paul is keen to know how they're getting on. And uh, not only that, but keen to reassure them, as we saw yesterday, and the day before, that first, they are authentic Christians in Thessalonica because of the way they responded to the Gospel. And second, Paul is an authentic Gospel minister. Very likely, mud was being slung at Paul. And so here Paul, again, continues in his defence of his ministry. And now you can notice how brilliantly they're sandwiched together. We start the letter with the authentic response of the Thessalonians, and then Paul's authentic gospel ministry. Then again we come with the authentic response of the Thessalonians. And now yet again Paul tells them of his authentic gospel ministry. That he is the real deal. And Paul sandwiches their response and his ministry together. Because the authentic gospel response and the authentic gospel minister go hand in hand. And so Paul, perhaps against accusations that he was a hit-and-run man, against accusations, well, Paul, you came to Thessalonica, but you've never come back. Paul, you went to Thessalonica, you're not really interested in the Thessalonians. But that's not true. So Paul can say, verses 17 and 18, when we were away from you for a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you, Again and again, but Satan stopped us. Now, we're not told actually how Satan stopped them, how it was that the evil one prevented them. Was it that they didn't get visas? Was it that they couldn't get their passport stamped? More likely, I think, in the context of the letter, it is that the opponents in verse 16 who have been making every effort to stop Paul speaking to the Gentiles, have been those that have prevented Paul from going to Thessalonica, and then notice what's so striking is Paul says in verse 18 that that is Satan stopping them. That's quite striking, isn't it? That people making an effort to stop the Gospel being spoken in verse 16 is described in verse 18 as Satan stopping. I wonder what you think of people who oppose gospel proclamation in those terms. It is quite striking, isn't it? 
that those who say no to going into a school to proclaim the gospel, that those who say no to a church plant in a different location, that those who say no to the mission that you want to go and engage in, that when they're making every effort to stop Gentiles hearing the gospel, that that is the work of Satan. But Paul tells them of his intense longing to go and see them because, I've got two headings for you this morning, because first, gospel work is motivated by Jesus coming. Gospel work is motivated by Jesus coming. I wonder if you can notice the structure that works through chapter 2 verse 17 through to the beginning of chapter 3. It goes something like this. It's an A, because B, therefore C structure. Let me show it to you. Verses 17 and 18 is Paul's desire and his effort to go and see them. And then it's explained in verse 19 and 20, with verse 19 beginning with a because, or for. Because, verse 19 and 20. And that leads to, do you notice verse 1 of chapter 3 opens with a so, or a therefore? Therefore so. I sent Timothy, left ourselves on our own and sent Timothy to you. The structure is A, because B, therefore C. It's a very common Pauline structure of argument. We use it sometimes in our language today. So I might say, I've got an umbrella with me because it's raining, so I've got my coat too. What that means is that the two outer layers of such a sandwich the I've got an umbrella and I've got my coat, are both explained by what comes in the middle. So verses 19 and 20 is the explanation of both Paul's longing in verses 17 and 18 and the sending of Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1. Can you see how the structure works like that? A, because B, therefore C. So A and C are both explained by what comes in the middle. In other words, what comes in the middle, which is verses 19 and 20, is what has led to Paul's intense longing to go and see the Thessalonians, and what then leads him to send Timothy to Thessalonica, and we'll see what Timothy does when he gets there in a moment. In other words, verses 19 and 20 are what motivates Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. His heart for them, and then his sending of Timothy to them when he couldn't go there himself. So let me read verse 19 and 20 again to you. Here is the heartbeat of what drives Paul's concern and drives Paul's gospel work in sending Timothy there. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? The coming of Jesus... We call it the second coming, but all the way through in 1 Thessalonians it's just called the coming. The coming of the Lord Jesus is what dominates Paul's perspective. Indeed, I want to go so far as to say that although in 1 Thessalonians there are plenty of other things as well that rightly motivate Paul's ministry, and we saw some of them uh, yesterday in the first part of chapter 2, nonetheless, Right the way through 1 Thessalonians, the coming of Jesus dominates Paul's perspective. And I want to go so far as to say 
that if we don't have an eternal perspective, the coming of Jesus clear in our minds, we will not keep going and have the intense longing for people that Paul had. The intense longing that will lead us to do something about people's spiritual state. The coming of Jesus. But what will happen at the coming of Jesus, verse 19 and 20? What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our our, our glory and joy, which could mean you are both our present glory and joy and will be also in the future. Or it could be another one of those, so certain is it, that it's put into the past tense. What is it that motivated Paul to try and return and see the Thessalonians? What is it that made Paul, when he couldn't bear it any longer, to send at personal cost, notice chapter 3, verse 1, notice he says, we thought it best to be left by ourselves, at personal cost to Paul, what is it that led him to send Timothy? It is the belief that the Thessalonians, on the day Jesus comes, are his crown in which he will glory. Now that could be read in a couple of uh, ways. It could be that the sheer sight of the Thessalonians in glory when Jesus comes will be the wow for Paul that is the reward. I think it's for you. It could be that the sheer sight of the Thessalonians in glory is the reward. Or it could be that seeing people whose ministry or whose lives you've been involved with brings a reward, a crown in glory. And you'll need to work out which of those two you think. My own view is that we needn't be embarrassed about the idea of rewards in glory. Some Christians find that troubling and offensive. But my own view is that that is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So in the Sermon on the Mount, which regrettably Times Religious Correspondent says is her favourite sermon because you can read it from beginning to end in seven minutes, which is what she thinks is the ideal length of a sermon. But but in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember in in, in chapter 6, Jesus says that part of the motivation for praying and giving and fasting secretly was what? Our Father sees what we do in secret and rewards in heaven. Or the parable of the ten miners. You know the parable that Jesus tells just, um, just before he enters into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19? How the servants are each given a coin and a call to work on behalf of the master while she's absent, while he goes to be crowned king and then he will return. Clearly it's Jesus speaking about how he is going to be absent from the disciples. How he's going to be absent from us and we are to work on his behalf and he will then return, having been crowned king. He will return and will call us to account for how we have worked for him. And notice you remember the story how in, in the story, the one who, I don't know, did he buy a second-hand camel business or Palestinian spring water business, whatever he did, he is return, comes and the one coin has made ten and he's, he's put in charge of ten cities. The other who's got five, he's put in charge of five cities. Both get the same accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. Reward? 
I don't think we need the embarrassment. Who knows what the reward quite is? I used to think that it would mean, well, you know, Gus would be on near the front row in glory and Roger and I would be in the video overflow. And, uh, <laughs> but I suspect it's not quite like that. Indeed, it might even be literal in that story Jesus tells. After all, what was mankind created to do at creation? We were to rule, weren't we? What will we do in the new creation? We will reign or rule with Christ. It may well be describing that there will be differing rules for us, differing ruling that we will have. It will be differing service with Christ in the new creation. But I take it that we're being told it, both in the parable Jesus tells, and here Paul telling us in 1 Thessalonians, because it's meant to encourage us, it's meant to motivate us in our ministry. What will keep us going in ministry? It will be understanding that the ministry we're engaged in really matters for eternity and matters for us for eternity. We'll see in a moment it matters for the Thessalonians for eternity too, but it matters for us for eternity. What is going to stick, keep you going? Yeah, there's a buzz of a week like this and summer's full of activity but you know, when the, when the autumn months come along I don't know about you but I'm the kind of person who finds gospel work much harder in the winter than the summer I'm the kind of person who finds that um, going out to do some ministry going out to speak you know, when it's dark and cold and what keeps you going like that? It is the thought that the people we minister to will be our crown and joy for all eternity. That's, what the, that's the perspective. Jesus coming and the glory that will be for Paul. But it's very easy to lose our eternal perspective, isn't it? It's easy because the here and now is what screams at us, isn't it? Because of the five physical senses, they all scream the reality of the here and now. And the eternal, I have to see by faith. You know, the eternal perspective, I can't see with my eyes. I can't touch with my hands. I can't hear with my ears. I can't smell with my nose. I can't taste with my tongue. But that reality is the reality that ought to keep us going. Now, you've probably all heard the old uh, story of the student who wrote home at the end of his first term at university. Dear Mum and Dad, I'm sorry I haven't written earlier, but it's been a very busy term. After two weeks, our university hall residence at caught fire. I only escaped by jumping from the third story window. I was fortunate only to break both legs and my pelvis. I was taken to hospital, and there was looked after by a lovely medical team, by one nurse in particular. Dear Mum and Dad, to cut a long story short, that nurse and I got married last Saturday. Mum and Dad, I don't think you need to be concerned at the difference in our ages, national background, colour or social status. <laughs> Dear Mum and Dad, please don't let anything I've written alarm you. None of it's true. The truth is, I failed my first term exams. I just wanted you to get things into perspective. <laughs> Getting things into perspective. That Jesus will reward the hard work of the gospel now 
in eternity, keeping that reward is the encouragement we need to keep going. It is what will lead to us to have a genuine pastoral concern for people, such that we will take action for them, as we'll see in a moment. Yet, if we allow our treasures to be in the here and now, then ultimately, I don't think that we will have a proper heart for people, a proper longing for people, and a right-focused ministry towards people. Seeing people converted and then continuing to stand for Christ is our eternal treasure. So work at it. So gospel ministry is motivated by Jesus' coming. But here's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. Gospel ministry is dominated by Jesus' coming. It's not just the motivation, it's the substance. It's not just what drives us to do it, it is actually what we do. Gospel ministry is dominated by Jesus' coming. So notice Paul's pastoral heart, which was motivated by Jesus' coming, leads Paul to send Timothy. But what does Paul send Timothy to do? Notice verse 2. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to do what? To strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Why? Verse 3. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Unsettled? It's got the same idea as disestablished. It's got the idea of being knocked off course. It's got the idea of being stumbled. In other words, what Paul wants Timothy to do is to encourage and strengthen, to stabilise and build, because Paul is concerned that the opposition that they are receiving in Thessalonica might in some way knock them off course. In other words, what Timothy's job is to do is to, is to strengthen and encourage their faith so that they will keep going. Yeah, it's, the, it's the mastermind quality, isn't it? I've started, so I'll finish. That's what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. They started, he wants them to keep going. He doesn't want them knocked off course. Here is a church that Paul has heard has started out brilliantly. He, in chapter 1, can call them the model. But starting isn't enough. It's making it to the end. We all remember, well those of us who are English, remember Paula Radcliffe in the Athens Olympics. And we had bright hopes for her. There she was, she started off. But do you remember seeing the TV pictures of her sitting beside the curb after 19 miles? Now I'm, I'm not knocking Paula Radcliffe, I've got real admiration for her. She got to 19 miles, I couldn't get to 19 metres. I was impressed. But she didn't make the end. And there was no medal for her. And the tragedy was that five days later she entered the 10,000 metres and couldn't complete that either. Paul does not want that for the Thessalonians. He doesn't want them having started out as the model response if they are then going to be unsettled. So, when we could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage faith. 
And then in verse 5, notice Paul adds a second, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, it's the same phrase as verse 1, when we could stand it no longer. And the question in the commentaries is, is verse 5 a second issue that Paul is concerned about for the Thessalonians, or is it a same a re- repetition of the first? The, using the word for this reason at the beginning of verse 5 suggests it might be a re- repetition of the first. But the language of the tempter, and given what's going to come in chapter 4, about Paul concerned that the Thessalonians might give in to sexual immorality, suggests it might be that there is a two-pronged danger that Paul sees the Thessalonians facing. That Paul is concerned, firstly, that opposition might unsettle them. And you may remember in the parable of the sower, Jesus also says that opposition, persecution, was one of the reasons that the first three seeds gives up. And that's why it's interesting, isn't it, in verse four, 3 and 4, that Paul says, you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. Interesting, isn't it, that in Paul's proclamation of the gospel in Thessalonica, that if you become Christian, you are going to get it in the neck. If you become Christian, you will be persecuted, is part of what he kept telling them while he was there. Paul was not like an Arthur Daly second-hand car salesman. Or like the car hire people I encountered when we went to Spain last October for half term. There we were, we came out of the, uh, we got our luggage off the carousel, we came through the gate, and I went to the car hire desk. And uh, the man thrust a form in front of me and he said, sign here, here, here and here. I said, what am I signing to? He said, well, here at the bottom you're signing that you've read the terms and conditions and you agree to them. I said, but I haven't. He said, do you want to? I said, I am signing that I've read and agreed to them, so maybe I ought to. He turned over the page and there were the terms and conditions. They were in a font size so small that you needed a microscope to read them. And they were in a a colour that was so similar to the colour of the paper that you barely could make out the difference. He said, "Um, are you going to read them then? I said, "Um," and I could hear there were about four people behind me in the queue now listening to this conversation. They were getting more irate. The guy at the desk, we couldn't work out what the problem was. So I just turned over the form and signed it. And for all I know, I might have been signing away that if I let one little scratch get on our Fiat Punto, that I'd have to buy, I don't know, a Lamborghini Merchelado in, in, in exchange. I don't know what I was signing to. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus doesn't do that, isn't it? When he evangelises. That he tells us to count the cost. And he uses, of course, the illustration of the builder or the man going to war in Luke 14. And here Paul, he's not like the car hire man. He told them in Thessalonica, as he was gospeling them, what it was that they would be likely to receive. Destined for persecution. I wonder whether we as as evangelists remind people what they're signing up to when they say that, that, when we ask them, when we invite them, when we command them to become Christians. Paul is concerned that they may be unsettled, they may be knocked off course. And then second verse 5, he was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted them. 
And then notice he says, and then our efforts might have been useless. And that little word useless, it's the Greek word ekon, and it's exactly the same word that's used in the NIV to translate the word failure in chapter 2, verse 1. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul can say, our visit was not a failure, but then goes on and says in chapter 3, verse 5, if a tempter tempts the Thessalonians and they're knocked off course, then his visit would have been a failure, would have been useless. I wonder whether you can see how the eternal is dominating Paul's ministry. That he sends Timothy to strengthen and encourage in faith. In verse 5 he sends Timothy to find out about faith. The faith that we saw back in chapter 1 verse 3 that's one of the hallmarks of the genuine Christian. Not just that it starts, but it's keeping going. And Paul is concerned that the Thessalonians continue. So, for evangelists, for evangelists who are in a settled situation, where you see the same people week after week, month after month, you will be concerned, not just that they start, but they keep going. But for those who are itinerant, and go and perhaps don't see the people, well, we're going to see in a moment, you could do what Paul does, and that's pray for. That you may not be able to have the opportunity to go back and do the strengthening and encouraging in faith, but you could do what Paul does. Let me say that people keeping going as Christians really is vital. I was uh, struck by what uh, Pete was saying uh, yesterday, but uh, when he was talking about the friend of his, remember, who has turned away from being Christian. And how you could feel, in, as Pete was saying, how gutted he was by it. Can I say that in, I think sometimes we are more concerned when someone has cancer than when someone falls away. Don't mishear me, cancer is awful, I've got relatives who've died from it. But eternally it's far worse for a believer to lose their faith than for a believer to die of cancer. Let me ask you whether you believe that. It's far worse for a believer to lose their faith than for a believer to die of cancer. Very often in church, when someone gets cancer, we think that's the worst that could happen. But someone giving up is worse by far. So Paul sends Timothy. But the good news is, in verses 6 to 9, is that Timothy's come back. And we read of Timothy's encouraging report. So it's described as good news, verse 6. It's described, Timothy's come back and brought the gospel. The good news of your faith and love. Two of the three of the hallmarks that we see in chapter 1, verse 3. Then he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us, just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of, notice again this word, your faith. And then I think this line, I think it's the most amazing line of all, verse 8. <laughs> now we live. Paul's saying, I'm a live man because I hear of your faith. And there's nothing that makes me live more than hearing that you're going on. Boy, I'm alive. 
You can hear the excitement and the enthusiasm in Paul's tone there. It's as if, you know, it's not like sending an email and you get the reply instantly. Paul sent Timothy and he's waited for some time before Timothy's come back. And Timothy, Paul's been waiting every day. I wonder when Timothy's getting back. I'll get news, I'll get news. And Timothy's come back and he's brought the news and the news is brilliant. The Thessalonians' faith is fine. It's going on well. They are continuing. Man, I'm alive. About, uh, last week, in fact, I was uh, down at Oakhill College uh, in London when I was utterly surprised to bump into a girl called Sally. Uh, Sally uh, became a Christian uh, 15 years ago at an evangelistic weekend I spoke at. I remember that she prayed the prayer. I remember that she came and told me she'd prayed the prayer. And, and quite frankly, we haven't kept in touch. But there she was, at Oak Hill, 15 years later. She came up to me and gave me a big hug. She said, do you remember that weekend when I became a Christian? I said, yes, I do. She said, I'm training for full-time women's ministry in the local church now. She was jumping up and down. Man, I'm alive. Stories like that are just so thrilling, aren't they? I am alive. And so Paul said, how can we thank God enough for you? In return for all the joy that we have in the presence of God because of you. Timothy's report is good. But that doesn't mean the job's done. Because notice verses 10 to 13. Notice they started out right. Notice they're going on brilliantly. So what does Paul do? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we might see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. What does Paul mean there? Supply what is lacking in your faith. I don't think it was that there was some great deficiency in their knowledge, though perhaps commentators argue perhaps the information in chapters 4 and 5 suggests that they did need things to know and that uh, chapters 4 and 5 is what Paul would have told them when he got to Thessalonica, if he got back there indeed again. It's possible that that's the case. Or maybe what is lacking in their faith is what Paul goes on and prays for in verses 11 to 13. Now, may our God and Father himself make a way for us to come to you. In the meantime, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, just as ours does for you. And interestingly, of course, that is in chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10, what he does write that they should do, that their love will keep increasing. What's the second thing he prays? May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, which is what in chapter 5 he's going to write for them to do as well. In other words, what does Paul want to do? What's he longing that will happen? What is the lacking of faith? No, nothing I don't think that's big in terms of theological gaps. Now what Paul wants them to do is to keep growing in love and to be holy and blameless when Jesus comes. I take it Paul's praying, in effect, that they will keep going. That they'll just keep going. You see, as we said on 
What day was it? Was it Wednesday? As we said on Wednesday, faith and love and hope were the hallmarks of how the Thessalonians start out. But they are also how you go on. The way you start as a Christian is the way you keep going as a Christian. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians is thrilled they started out right, the model. He's now thrilled he's heard from Timothy that they're going on right, with faith and love. And so what does he pray for? That they'll continue to have faith and love and it'll keep growing until Jesus comes. Until Jesus comes. Notice the coming of Jesus is the thing that's dominating what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. Because when Jesus comes, he wants them still to be people of faith, hope and love. He wants them to make it to the end. And therefore, in our evangelistic ministry, we can't lose sight of the eternal perspective. It seems to me that you as evangelists primarily will be involved at the starting point. And I praise God for you. I praise God that he has given evangelists to the church. The starting off. But even though Paul couldn't get to Thessalonica, he doesn't lose interest in the Thessalonians. He wants them to keep going. He sends Timothy to encourage them and he himself is praying. So can I say, as you start people off, praise the Lord for them starting. Do pray that they keep going. Do all that you can to make sure that there are Timothys around them to encourage them and strengthen them. You must be concerned that they get into situations where they're going to be taught and encouraged and strengthened. The hit and run man who has no concern that people keep going isn't really on Paul's side, I don't think. Isn't dominated by Jesus coming. Yep, start them off and then make sure that they get to a Timothy. To someone who strengthens and encourages them. And you keep praying for them. You may not be able to be with them, but you can pray. And what will you be praying? You'll be praying that their love grows and that they're holy and blameless on the day that Jesus comes. And of course you'll be praying that because if they're there on the day Jesus comes, they'll be your crown of glory too. The eternal perspective. It's what motivates Paul and it's what dominates Paul's ministry.